0: Yeah. <laughs> Welcome to Next in Q, the podcast for contact center and customer experience professionals. Next in Q is brought to you by Happy Two Vision. Eliminate blind spots and see right through every conversation with Happy Two Vision. Learn more at ajppitu.com. Now, here's your host, Rob Dwyer.
1: Thank you, everyone, for joining another episode of Next in Q. Today, I am joined by Senior Consultant at Player Support, Tony Wan. How are you, Tony? Hey, I'm doing well, Rob. How are you? I'm great. So we're going to talk about what you are doing with Player Support, but I want to go back because you have had a very interesting journey into getting to where you are today, um, and and you've been in the the video game industry for a long time, but I understand that you were a bit of a tinkerer as a kid when it came to video games. Tell me about that.
0: Sure. Yeah. Um, So (laughs) I I would say um, uh, I like to deconstruct things. I always like to know how something works. It's just like part and parcel of my personality. So as a kid, um, you know, back in the early 80s, we had a lot of these um, kind of handheld, this is before Game Boy came out, but we had a lot of these single game machines or like mini arcade boxes. Um, and you could only play whatever game that was. And they usually ran these massive batteries, but I would literally like take those apart and see, how all the lights worked, what controlled what, what wires made what do what, um, and see if I can't uh, you know, put it back together or if something stopped working, if I could just fix it myself. And so I did quite a bit of that um, hardware tinkering with, with those old <laughs> game machines.
1: So speaking of games, What's the what's the game that you remember as a kid? Like that just made the biggest impression on you as a kid.
0: Mm. Uh, well, I think the you know for a lot of kids um, at the time, the first Nintendo system came out, and they gave you the game that with it <laughs> that just made all the difference in the world. So, you know, it's Super Mario Brothers. Uh, I think for for any kid of the eighties is certainly one of those things that you always went to. Um, the speed runs that I see today really amaze me, but just being good <laughs> at the game was, uh, was pretty awesome. So that that made a huge impression. Obviously, Zelda, the first one as well, came out, you know, not, not long after Metroid was another big one. So a lot yeah, of, you stuff. know, huge, a lot of great stuff for Nintendo. Um, at the arcade, uh, Street Fighter II is probably a really big one for me. Uh, just remember... A lot of people put, putting your quarter on the machine. I got next um, stuff like that yeah. Those made a yeah really big impression. Yeah, and and the first Final Fantasy as well. Um, really got into the RPGs after that. So
1: yeah, yeah, that's interesting. So Final Fantasy was never a thing for me. Like every game you mentioned, I'm like, yes, absolutely. Like I remember, uh, particularly on Sundays. I would get up and my, my brother at the time, he was quite a bit younger than me, right? He's Eight years old. And so we had the Nintendo in the living room and it was like, you turn the volume down so that you didn't wake up the parents because you knew that that meant you were going to church. And that was a lot of game time that you lost. And so it was like, no, 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 you need to be quiet. We need to be super quiet. Let them sleep. And we'll just sit here and play Nintendo until you get that callus on your thumb from those original NES controllers. Oh, yeah. It's good stuff. So you did a lot of gaming and then you went to college at, uh, what was it, San Diego State? Uh, UC or San Diego. UC San Diego. Um. Uh-huh. And got a degree in visual media, but then you went for a master's that doesn't necessarily uh, is less predictable than what <laughs> most people would think about. So tell me about that.
0: Sure. So um, so I did. Uh, I did two. Um, so I did them back to back. The first one was in uh, theology and ancient languages. So uh like uh, specifically um biblical hebrew and then koine greek which is a um, specific type of greek used in the new testament so i did that first and that took about three years um and uh yeah that, that's what i did and the one right after that was in uh political uh management uh, focusing a lot on um campaigns um, and uh, I would say a bunch of communication skills um, and uh, you know just political all the stuff around political management essentially from when you're starting a campaign trying to win it and then what do you do once you get into office all that kind of stuff Um, both of those really kind of centered around I think a lot of Young people want to change the world, right? They want to do something good yeah. for people, and so uh, very idealistic. Um, and I was like, "Hey, I, I should." I think these two two things would be foundational for uh, for getting involved and for uh, helping, hopefully, craft policies or you know better laws that would that would make uh, make the uh, just make society better for everybody. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So. You actually did go into a little bit into politics, then, right? Yes, yes.
0: So yeah. Um, tell me about that. Yeah, so um, you know, eventually went on. Um, I got involved with politics uh, at at every level of government through a nonprofit called the Silicon Valley Leadership Group, and um, we were involved uh, from you know, kind of focus on that geographical area um everything from municipalities uh, to state government and then we did a couple of um kind of federal government uh, trips per year and so got a chance to participate at every level of government um to help whether it's a local project like hey um and this was years ago. You you could see the the results in the housing prices now. Though we're like, hey, you probably want to start like allowing you you know changing some of these old building codes so people can build up, because yeah. uh, we we're gonna have a serious uh, housing problem in the Silicon Valley if you don't. And uh, you know you're gonna price a lot of people out, and then you're gonna increase commute times you know there's all these knock-on effects of just not allowing people to build up um, and uh, of course we didn't win those battles <laughs> but we kept recommending and you know uh, <clears throat> you can see kind of the results of that in the, the skyrocketing housing prices people actually being pushed out continuously um, lots of lost productivity when people do have to commute um, you know all the you could say, you know, people moving out now because they don't have to be there physically since the pandemic, et cetera. So, you know, it's not, um, the situation's not improving any. Um, But, uh, but yeah, so we did stuff like that all the way to the federal level. We're looking at things like, how does the US as a country, you know, perform as an attractive uh, place to do business, Um, specifically on the um, R&D tax credits uh, was something I was trying to keep Um, advise politicians to keep the US competitive when it came to um, innovation, making sure that we're making it easy for companies to decide to do massive amounts of their research and development in America. So um, things like that, um, kind of general corporate taxes as well, um, finance, etc. So, you know, everything from kind of very local concerns all the way up through to uh, federal concerns for business. Healthcare, education, etc. So we had we had stances on on a bunch of stuff that we uh, just try to help get a better policy. I mean, the it was a nonpartisan organization, and we always said internally we we're not interested in playing party politics. It's just about what policies actually work to make things better for people, right? Like what's actually going to produce better. So I, I like that approach.
1: I wish we all took more of that approach quite honestly I think <laughs> I think uh I think we'd all get along a lot better if we took that approach. So that all sounds very um different from being involved in the gaming industry <laughs> like I, I hear this <laughs> and it's it's like I, I get all of that. and then all of a sudden, uh, you're at what was was gameloft the the first place that that you started, or did you do something yeah. before that?
0: Oh no, G- game Loft was the first yeah, games job that I had. it's It's how I got a foothold in the industry. Um, my entryway into gaming um, as a profession uh, was in production um, as a producer. Uh, and um, it was in a very far away place from <laughs> where I was used to working, uh, but it was an opportunity that led me to uh, operate in Vietnam, um, in Ho Chi Minh City, uh, at a very, um, it was an experimental group at the time, they, they put us in a one of the smaller side offices, Uh, we got a team together and they're like, hey, Uh, traditionally the studios there had mainly, and I still believe that they probably mainly do uh, porting. Um, So that's, you know, it's not as exciting as actually working on a game and and making things yourself. Um, But you got a lot of people who understood very well how to optimize things that were built for like, you know, the highest spec iOS mobile devices, and then how to make them work on other kinds of devices that aren't as high-performing, and so you got a lot of really, like, smart, disciplined young people who understood, um, you know, how how code interacted with the various hardware limitations really well, and a lot of people who are just dying for some, like, create, creative outlet because it It's not very creative. Optimizing for performance, right? And so, (laughs) um, you know, we got a very small team together: a couple devs, uh, a couple artists, a couple game designers. And they're like, "Hey, we got this product. It's you know, we we think it could use some some polish and some massaging. And we we want to try. Back then, free to play was still really new. to Gameloft. And so they're like, hey, you know, we liked what you, a lot of what you said in your um, the application process about that model. Um, and I just happened to learn it from a lot of my friends who had been in the industry since we graduated. Um, and a lot of the companies that kind of pioneered that, um, that, that business model. And um, they're like, yeah, we want to see if it works uh, with any of our games and our IPs. And We've never done this before, but here you go. First-person shooter, and uh, they gave me a really cool IP to work with. Work with, which was the the Brothers in Arms um, IP, and uh, so super excited to work on that game with that small team. And we were able to to knock out, you know, the the uh, kind of open beta version um, within about four months, which was nice. So yeah, that was really fun. That was my entry win um, leading a team of, of those awesome people to, to make that game.
1: It sounds like that was just, a, a just a huge change in your life, right? So you're not just changing careers, but you, you moved to Vietnam. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Had you ever been there before?
0: Uh, I had visited, but, just on holiday that's very different from like living yeah
1: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. so what was that like just like taking everything really that you kind of knew from a a living situation and a working situation and just like throwing that all (laughs) to the wind and going I'm gonna do this thing over here and just see what happens but what was that like
0: yeah um it was it was strange it, it was um, partly confusing um I would say you know the way that it arrived I, I was actually waiting because um the team that I was with when I was with um, the Silicon Valley leadership group uh they were actually in the middle of creating a permanent um a new permanent position for me um and, but they were very clearly like, Hey, it's going to take about four months, just due to our business cycles. And like the board has to approve the role and everything like that. And four months is, is quite a bit of time to wait. And so I was like, okay. Um, and, you know, I, I happened to to find and apply for this open producer position at came locked and was very, very grateful for the opportunity they gave me. And um, so it was uh, exciting, you know, because I, I've always loved games, obviously. Um, but then also confusing just because, you know, there is, um, like you said, there's not a ton of explicit natural overlap between going from <laughs> trying to help out with, you know, government and nonprofit and public policy and like, you know, helping, um, you know, developing countries, et cetera, like all of this kind of work that has to do more with um, you know, organizing people, volunteer work, governments, policy, et cetera, and you know, building a, a video game. So there was quite a bit of um, additional study that I had to put in after, after hours, right? Or even just in preparation to take the job. Um, a lot of it was just grilling my friends Kind of like naturally learning from them, um, you know. When you're you're young and you're, everyone's single and in their 20s, you, you meet up after work and either you know maybe there's a couple of gripes and you know you talk while you're eating dinner or hanging out, and you inevitably talk about work. So, learning a lot of things uh, through them, but then spending some serious time studying up on uh, kind of software development trends, agile as agile software development was, was still relatively fresh at that point, it hadn't been, it's not the fully commoditized version that you see today with all of this additional structure and gurus and blah, 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 but it kind of more in its purest form of like, just really understanding the agile manifesto, understanding principles and the spirit behind it. And for me, starting to weave in a lot of those kind of community organization and like building skills where you're working with a team and trying to figure out what's the best way for this specific group of people to actually work together and then how does that connect to the rest of you know the organism so ideas like some ideas that you know transfer but have different names or things like who are your key stakeholders right how do you manage those folks what's the perception of the project or the team, et cetera. And so, you know, a lot of anything I had a friend once tell me anything that involves human beings is political, right? So it's like, well, you know, you have the opportunity to look at the organization just from a human relationship standpoint and to try to understand how you're going to be able to navigate that most effectively and and help your team get wins and to be I would say properly recognized and rewarded for those wins um, because sometimes they aren't like, if you're not. Um, and I've struggled with this at certain points in my career. If you're not a good, good at bringing the visibility for your team's wins, then even though they're doing a wonderful job, that might not be recognized to the extent that it should be in the company. Mm-hmm. Um, but with that first team, I, I think they did a, a very good job with that. And the visibility was good. So, you know, um, yeah, that team's great.
1: It, it strikes me, and I, I hear this all the time from people with all kinds of different backgrounds, that when you talk about things that don't necessarily explicitly translate, but really those skills that you're learning when you're involved in politics, right? So you're, you're organizing, you're trying to convince people uh, of uh, a path forward and uh, often then celebrating right when you get those wins or dealing with um, setbacks, right and, and how do we keep moving forward after a setback if we experience that, right That's all part of uh, politics. That's also part of working with with teams no matter what industry that you're in and, It seems like those skills probably came in very handy as you were working with the team, even though the industry was totally different.
0: Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think uh, one of the benefits of GW's program was just the hyper focus on the practical communication skills, right? Um, And that really helping everything from putting together speeches to putting together policy drafts, like you know. It's like a business proposal it's like a, you know there's, yeah. these, there's these kinds of connections in which in which you can make um and uh you know depending on the environment that i'm going into and what it is that um let's say my bosses are asking for you might put some more of those skills to use you know than others um and uh yeah there's there's you know, communication I think is so vital for any team at any company. And it's not, I feel like it's not given enough attention in our primary education, um, you know, just even through high school, um, the I feel like there's not enough emphasis on clear communication, better writing, different kinds of writing for different scenarios. Um, and, uh, you know, speech and debate was optional, right? Like I yeah. took it, but it wasn't like, it wasn't something that mm-hmm. everyone had to take. And I think a lot of people would be well-served in their own personal careers and their teams would benefit if they had the ability to uh, have more confidence in speaking about things that they needed, right? Or, um whether that's, uh, you know, hey, every company's got limited resources. We've got to figure out how to allocate these. You know, teams being able to put forth their best foot forward with a solid argument um, about why their thing needs attention, like now versus six months down the road or a year down the road, right? Um, so I think everyone would be would be well served, or even personal negotiation, like you need a raise. You've needed a raise for three years, but you haven't said anything. You just grumbled in the corner, right? It's like, no, like I'm going to help you get a raise, which is like one of those like random stats that I, I have for myself as like a manager. It's like, how do I help my people get, you know, promotions and or significant raises to where they should be? Not like, you know, above where they should be, but just where they should be. Because a lot of people are underpaid because there's no, um, not a lot of, maybe they just don't know how to go about it, or they never thought about how to do self-advocacy in a a polite and respectable manner. That's, you know, convincing, right?
1: Yeah, it's, I completely agree. Uh, I think it's pretty well documented that fear of public speaking is like one of the biggest fears that most people have, and yet it's such a useful skill in so many different aspects of our lives, right? Not just business, right? But if you're doing something, you know, community-based, um, if 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 you want to have a podcast, right? But <laughs> whatever, whatever it is, there are lots of opportunities to utilize that skill. But if you haven't had the opportunities to hone some of those basic skills, it's no wonder that people are really, really scared of it and they just don't want anything to do with it. And so, yeah, they do. They just kind of grumble about it at home or at the bar or to their spouse yeah. or whatever. <laughs> and they are not being able to advocate for themselves even, which is not even necessarily public speaking, right? Maybe yeah, yeah. just between you and your supervisor but being able to communicate really well
0: yeah yeah 100 and i and i feel like a lot of you know our settings um uh i guess over index on benefiting folks who present well right that's just one of the unfortunate realities of how business gets done and so um uh I am always trying to help people who have aspirations, whether that's for leadership management or um, even as a trainer, for example, uh, just to be able to start practicing those skills um, and to present uh, little things, you know, to the team and to start flexing those muscles um, so that they can get better at it. Because super important.
1: (laughs) Yeah, definitely. So... What did you do after Game Loft? Because you didn't leave Vietnam, correct? You you stuck around for a little bit, but did something different?
0: Yeah, that's right. Um, so, you know, we very quickly launched that project. And um, I just happened to have a friend in the industry who uh, was part of my early education, very helpful and, and a good friend. And he wanted to just go off on his own, as young people do, and do a startup. And so that was that was my first startup opportunity. He's like, "Hey, you've learned a lot." He's like, "I I, I trust your instincts." I've been, you know, because I've been sharing with him like what I've been doing, and, and we've been having conversations about the work. And he said, "Um, you know, you have a lot of uh, good instincts, and uh, would like to see if you'd be open to." Business partnership. And so that's when we, when I went on my first startup adventure uh, with a friend. We would known each other for years at that point, kind of just implicit trust, you know, across the board. And he asked me to, he's like, hey, he was in uh, China at the time, I was in Vietnam. He's like, hey, uh, you know, with the very little capital we have that we've saved up between each other we can actually run a studio for a few years right um because it was so inexpensive compared to you know the developers we are used to working with in the us and i was so impressed with my team's skills you know big plug for for the vietnam deaf community right here it's like they're awesome <laughs> um, so if if you know um uh, and a shout out to my old team. One day, maybe again, we we talk. They they, they ping, you know, every so often, probably at least once a year. Just to ask me if I'm, I'm ever starting anything up again. But <laughs> really great community out there. Very talented people, and you know, the cost of living is much less. You know, for a very comfortable cost of living. So you know, we started up uh, our, our little mobile game startup there. Um, I made sure to pay them more than these massive multi-billion dollar companies um, paid them. So, you know, I wanted to take really good care of them, offer them American style benefits, which which aren't required in the Vietnam work environment and, you know, treated them really well, um, lots of autonomy. Uh, and yeah, we we built a little studio. It was really a good time. Um, you know, small dev team, I picked up all the random parts of engineering that like, either like people didn't want to do or didn't want to get into. So like sound engineering, random stuff with game design, et cetera, and getting, uh, connecting the pieces um, and just working with everybody uh, to build um, a small but, but mighty team. We, we were able to launch two games in about 14 months. Um, and and did you know pretty well before we ended up uh, kind of selling the company.
1: It's amazing how much you can learn and how uh, how many hats you can wear in a small startup when <laughs> you're like, well, we don't we don't actually have anyone that does this, so we're just gonna figure it out. Like somebody's gonna do it. Yeah. Sounds yeah, like yeah. you were that guy. Like, just, <laughs> ah, I don't know. I'll make it happen. <laughs>
0: yeah, I I tend to thrive in in environments that um you know that require uh, whether it's innovation or um, just a lot of creative problem solving, usually due to either some kind of resource constraint or something like that. And so you know when you're when you're starved, so to speak, uh, you, you have to come up with creative solutions. And that's really fun for me. Like, for some people, I think that gives them like heartburn. Like, ah, oh, I don't want to know. I need resources, you know. Um, and I'm not trying to you know, say anything negative about uh, that way of working. Um, it's just that I, I, I prefer um, for myself uh, where our uh, innovation and experimentation are highly encouraged, if not necessary. Um, I like operating in that space um, and, you know, credit to my team. A lot of them were the same way, even though they they were very disciplined, uh, like software developers, for example, even they're very you know disciplined engineers and they had great experience. There were a couple of things where they're like, I've never had this much autonomy before, <laughs> right? And they were like, yeah. can we can we use this engine, Tony? And I'm like, yeah, just go for it. I'm like, well, you know, like I asked him why, like, why do you like it? But then, you know, pretty much it's just like, hey, you know, you guys are the ones building this. Um, You're telling me these are the reasons. It's within budget. Like, let's do it, you know. Um, And uh, that was one of the hard things to get through to my team, actually, because of the environment they had been in before. They were always very constrained and kind of just like, the working model of sort of do what you're told to do and uh, i remember especially with my artists the the concept artists like my lead artist it took like a good number of weeks for us to solidly get the concept through that when we were talking about generating new ideas for the next game or for specific design i literally told it like no you can do anything you can do anything you want right like we have conversations and then you have visions in your head and you go (laughs) put whatever you like down and then we talk about them some more and then you refine and then you just keep doing that and um i used to take him out for coffees to, to have these conversations to get him to relax because he was always used to being like oh here's the art style here's the design dictionary or design bubble whatever it is right these are the parameters and then here's like the examples and mix somebody who looks like this which is why you see so many times like in video games you're like hey that character looks like <laughs> seriously yeah. close to some kind of movie star i've seen somewhere before i know i've seen that face you know or that type of you know persona around in some kind of movie but uh you know, it was funny when the lights turned on for him, I, I'll never forget that moment because his eyes, just he said, like, I could do anything. And it's yes, you got it. It only took a few weeks, um, but it was great. Um, it was a great experience. And I was happy to see him just go after that. And it was really fun. Yeah,
1: probably the most excited he had been about anything in a long time.
0: probably, probably. I mean, we had a great time together, and um, I know that I know that team. If uh, you know, we we ever kind of got um, the idea to go back and do another studio, I'm, I'm pretty sure at least a few of them would would uh, would jump back on the train and 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 go for it again.
1: <laughs> so, were you doing any customer support there, or did that come after? Um, only what was
0: necessary right and so you know um as the the business owner and and kind of operational leader um you know of course uh i was the one fielding all of the player inquiries um via uh, mostly via email and facebook um and uh, doing all of the stuff on the app store, um, but yeah, so you know, you had you had touches of it, like the necessary stuff. Whether that is you know something on the Facebook wall, we didn't they didn't even have Messenger back then, um, so it's just stuff posted on your wall. This is, well, this is how we did it old school, folks. So, uh, you know, they just posted complaints directly on your wall and you got to deal with them and, you know, you put your email up there. And um, so, yeah, I mean, I did some of it there but it was mostly the main stuff. And I would have to say that those teams were so good of checking each other's co- like code quality that there were there were very few bugs so we didn't have a, like an influx of like massive tickets due to some kind of exploiter bug or something like that those those devs were just really top notch and had good clean code and they could do their own qc or qa you know they they knew what was up so uh, made my job a lot easier i have to say <laughs>
1: Yeah, for sure. So then did you, after that, transition into more of a player support role? Yeah,
0: after running that business, uh, you know, doing startups is super tiring. So I was just in um, South Korea with my wife and she uh, just gave birth. And so just attending to my new family and trying to make a nice home for everybody. Um, and I, I didn't want to like see anybody for because I was really tired. But then I kept getting these phone calls. And there's this, um, a friend of mine had spoken to a gentleman who uh, had just sold, I think they just sold one of their companies. Um, and the, the buyers didn't care much about their staff. So they saw that as a golden opportunity and took their core staff and then just spun up another studio down the street. And so they, they had an idea. They launched it. It's doing pretty well. They called me. A friend's like, hey, can you talk to the CEO? And I'm like, no, I don't want to. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but he said, hey, you know, do it for me. Um, and he's a good friend. So I said, OK, for you, I'll do it. Um, I really liked the guy. I was like, Oh no, he's so <laughs> smart and awesome. Like what a cool guy. Um, I had a really good conversation with him. And so he said, Hey, you know, I heard you good with people. Um, I want you to be in charge of all the player facing stuff, anything that has to do with player direct player communication. Um, so it's like player support, social media forums, email marketing, etc. just anything directly communicating with players. He's like, I want you to, of be the voice the face of the company and i said okay it sounds interesting um i like you um move back to california i'm like okay okay i'll move back to california um because that's where the the u.s side of the business was spinning up so yeah uh joined uh gosu group uh opened our office in downtown san mateo in california and that was the beginning of another great um startup adventure Really enjoyed working with that team. Amazing, and that's when I first began to dive and hyper focus on anything doing with player comms, uh, player support being one of the major ones. So yeah, that
1: was that was really fun to to start. So, how big was that team that that you had for player support? We started off really small. So I
0: came in; they already had a couple of customer service agents. So they called it customer support and they already had some contractors um, working mainly out of the Philippines um, on an hourly basis to just interact with the players and help with tickets. Um, And so we started off with just one, really. Um, The team, you know, later grew um, to, one, two, three, four. We had, it's like one rapidly grew to five, which grew to 10. Um, And then, you know, at at its highest point, around 20, 20 something. Um, And so, yeah, that's that's how big that team got. It didn't really get any bigger than that because we just didn't need it. We only had... Um, I, I think the number was around 22 million ish um, players at our peak. So, um, and things were rather efficient. So, we didn't, we didn't need much more than that.
1: And 22 million sounds like a lot, but you yeah, were more... about to experience a, a different <laughs> type of, of scale in uh, your, your player base in your career because so you go from 22 million players and and roughly 20 agents at its peak and then uh was riot next
0: yeah Riot games was next um the uh (laughs) yeah i i wanted to see if um so again, I had a lot of autonomy and um, wanted to see if any of the unorthodox, let's say, ideas that were spun <laughs> up with a much smaller team would actually scale. Um, I was really interested in what kind of massive global scale looked like for a lot of these functions because you know, running live ops for you know, relatively small community of, of gamers of so around twenty-two is very different um, than doing it at you know truly massive global scale. And and Riot at the time was um, you know quickly approaching the one hundred million player mark, and you know going towards one twenty something, I believe, it was the peak at that particular time. Um, but yeah, much different scale. Uh, I only was responsible for a portion of it, um, but what's what's really interesting is that it, the um, some companies do this, especially like U.S. centric companies. They kind of treat the EU as if it's like one one big country when it's really not. <laughs>
1: so <laughs> yeah,
0: right, variety of different languages, uh, many different countries. Um, you know, pretty wide. There's a variety of time zones, et cetera. Um, and so that was really an opportunity to see what it looked like um, and to be able to um, work with a team that had been doing it already for years. Something my boss told me when I joined was like, yeah, the team's already good, right? They're already solid. Um, but we're, we're trying to see how we could get the team to the next level right and so it wasn't like oh come in and you know everything's on fire sort of a thing it was much more of a this is a great team it's a great they've got a lot of wins under the belt a lot of experience but um it feels like they're kind of stuck sometimes teams get stuck and so it's like how can we help them get unstuck and elevate everything to the next level which was a really interesting challenge as well so i got to see what that Business looks like, and then specifically what player support looks like to support you know that large of a of a business with that many intense fans because it's not I really love esports and it's not just um, you know a game that people have personal investment in it for, for a lot of for a number of people they're they're really trying to win right and yeah. um, you know you've got these great uh, esports athletes. Um, out there trying to either get on a team, um, you've got lots of streamers, et cetera. And so there's a really devoted fan base behind the IP. Um, And to see the IP develop too was was really interesting because it was sort of kind of all over the place um, for a while but Riot happened at the same time that I was there, really started investing in building up the universe a lot more. Um, which eventually led to Arcane, which, um, you know, I was so fortunate to be able to see the pilot um, before my time was up there and was super excited. I remember we were in a town hall watching it and my table, we all like jumped out of our chairs as soon as the trailer was over. And like we were the only ones. <laughs> I don't know why. But, like, we, thought it, we thought it was so awesome, but we're, like, we looked like the crazy people in the office and we're like, no, we think that's going to be awesome um so and, and it was i mean you know it came out just this past year and and it was great it's really fantastic so yeah it was, a, it was a wonderful place to to work i think it's a it's an awesome uh, publisher developer you know and now they're spreading out into to multimedia and and more games and uh you know got a lot of confidence in the team over there that they're gonna be able to continue to do great things so yeah that was that was fun it was a really great time
1: So you went in there and this seems like uh, probably a little bit different than what you had done before. So rather than kind of organically growing your team and uh, really just kind of shaping the culture along the way through that growth, you're, you're coming into an existing team and in some ways tasked with changing some things and, and you're the new guy there. Yeah. <laughs> so, so how do you make that work? How, what, what was the secret to making that work really well for you?
0: Um, there was uh, a lot of listening. So my, my general approach when I'm coming into something and there's always there's already a very strong and, and, and well-known culture in place and a team has, you know, very strong history. Um, is to do a lot of listening. um, And not just sitting down and literally listening, but I take a lot of notes. I'll do individual um, interviews, I'll do team interviews, I'll do segments of the team. I'll do a lot of like socialization. And a lot of that is to really try and understand the people um, that are on these teams and what kind of Um, Culture exists, the company broadly, but then also the subculture of the team. Um, What has happened within this team, I always ask for history lessons. um, Mm -hmm. Just because people's history um, and the stories that they tell each other about that history, whether parts of it are exaggerated or true or not so true, Um, is the reality that you have to deal with as a leader coming in and trying to understand people and eventually, hopefully, shift the direction of things to a a more positive place. And so um, really paying close attention to that um, in as many ways as you can. So, you know, for a lot of the one-on-one interviews that I had, I would have these post-it notes and then I would go home and arrange them in different ways, for example, by like problem type, by people manager, by, you know, what they worked on, et cetera, um, how long they've been at the company, you know, um, just to, to see kind of what kinds of patterns emerge um, is kind of one tactic that I'd, I'd recommend that people do if you're going into a team, a really strong team that, that's been there with each other for a while. Um, And then I would say uh, being very clear. I think clear communication, again, come back to this being so important, but being able to clearly lay out in their own words and phrases and thoughts, what's happening? Because there's obviously, if a team is stuck, there's obviously some measure of confusion, some measure of a lack of clarity, um, some uh, breakdown of trust, perhaps. Um, And so being very clear about what the problems are and mapping that out so that everyone knows where we are together as a team. Um, And then I think really doing a lot of the work, I think executives have to pay attention to to not just exist in an organization, but to work on it. So whatever structures that you're, uh, you're empowered to move around and to influence whatever reward systems or punishment systems or any of the things that curb human behavior in a workplace that you are allowed to either negotiate or move around or just change on your own without any approval um, you should really think carefully about those and, and what you can begin to start shifting around so that people understand that things are changing. Things actually are different. It's not just a bunch of words. There's material benefits from that. Um, you know, uh, one of the biggest things we took a look at in that particular case was their work system. Pretty much non-existent. <laughs> so it's like, okay, let's take... Some of the things that I've learned through software development, you know, leading software development teams through the years, and let's apply some of them over here in this knowledge workspace. So, how do I help people who are not necessarily developing software? Some of them might, but who are not necessarily developing software, they might have to purchase them, et cetera. But we still have reasonable ways of understanding what are the goals we're aiming for, what kinds of Things make up our pathway to go in that direction to achieve those things. And what, you know, what are people doing on a daily basis to make sure that we're getting there, right. And so just that reasonable breakdown of what's in a work day and what's in a work month and what's in half of a year or a whole year um, helps to organize people and get everyone truly pointed in the same direction. rebuild some, some trust through visibility um, and sharing and communication. Right. So I would say those elements were really important for that time.
1: Yeah. I love that. You know, something that you said just really struck me and that was getting a history lesson. And I think while Uh, generally, we always want to focus on the future. It's hard to really navigate to where you want to go without really understanding the history. And that seems like an easy mistake to make is to not do that. And it just really struck me that, that you talk about kind of getting that lesson from each individual so that you understand really where they're coming from and and kind of where where they're where they are foundationally to help you then move forward and i i just really love that yeah
0: it's a, uh, i i think it's important i think it's really tempting for leaders to come and say i want to make an impact and therefore i'm going to change things immediately without any context but i i think that that's dangerous for you yeah um, if if you're you find yourself in that situation, because then you could make a decision um, that's just really off because you didn't know detail X or Y.
1: Yeah. So you spent a couple years at Riot, and then what came next? <laughs> this little this little thing we call Fortnite. Um, <laughs> <laughs>
0: I, yeah. <laughs> what is that? I've never, I've never heard of that. It's <laughs> some weird little game that some company made. No, um, Epic, uh, Epic Games uh, reached out, and um, they got this amazing recruiter. She's wonderful. Um, you know, they, they hired these third party folks who are just really good at what they do, right? And she, she pings me and it's over the course of a few months um and I still remember the conversation I'm sitting on the steps in front of my apartment it's in the evening and she's like well it sounds like you really love your team and, you know you love the company and you really enjoy the products that you're working on etc and you know she dangles the entrepreneur carte blanche <laughs> come build something carrot in front of my face and she's like hey like you come here and build whatever you want. And I was like, oh, you got me. (laughs) Um, You did your homework. And so, um, you know, that's, it's always like peaks my interest when someone says that. Um, And to um, Epic's credit, they really did give, you know, a a great amount of autonomy and a great amount of trust. I can't, I can't thank, uh, you know, Tim Sweeney and Dan Vogel and, and, and Amanda Rubin and all these other folks who, um, Crystal and all these other folks who, who, you know, Jeremy, sorry, all these guys during the interview that had, you know, uh, the trust and the, and the confidence to, to hire me. Um, you know, we, we had about 20, a little over 20 million uh, players at the time I got hired. Uh, it's a beast now. I mean, it's well over 500 million, I'm sure um and by the time i left i know we were at that 450 plus mark but you know that that thing grew like crazy hadn't seen anything grow that fast before when i was at riot you know was at the kind of tail end of this massive growth um and you know um a, a different mission at epic it was like everything's on fire it's this crazy dumpster fire like come help us you know like do whatever you needed to just get this thing under control we have no idea how much it's going to grow and truly no one had any idea if anyone tells you they do they're 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 not being very honest and so it's like well you know this thing's gonna grow we, we don't know how much And you know by the way we're launching a game store and by the way we're gonna do our own publishing and by the way we're gonna buy all these other companies and so it's like one thing after another, um, but it was an amazing sort of rocket ship, right? To be able to see a company go from, you know, a few hundred employees to a few thousand very quickly and uh, all the the challenges that that caused uh, for the company um, to, gr- to grow through um, everything from leadership to, you know, um, how are we going to, how we're going to navigate you know um, all these different uh, markets that we were getting into and doing our own publishing, et cetera, and opening up all these new businesses. So you know big big challenge, uh, player support was one of the one of the hardest things I've ever done was um, sort of get into that situation and take that team, through various stages of maturity that that normal companies when they go through, you should take a few years. Um, and I remember I would, I was literally like timing, um, let's say time to time to competence, um, in regards to player satisfaction with player support and like, in my mind, because I had the numbers from previous places, I was like, okay, how long did it take them to get to that point? And uh, that team was an amazing team. There's so much that they did, and they got there, you know, to, let's say, competency in about 18 months, It's about half the time that it took, you know, other teams that have seen that are also very good, which takes about three years. So, we did in 18 months what a lot of teams takes three years to do, and and uh, yeah, that team has a lot to be proud of. Like they, they, they did great. And then, you know, we went beyond, right. That was to get to par. And then after the first 18 months, then it was all about like building up more and how can we get ahead? And, um, you know, they've been able to follow that plan um, to get themselves, you know, significant wins for the players uh, over the past couple of years. And that's it's been wonderful to watch, you know, I left after three years, but it's been wonderful to watch, you know, the past year, um, kind of the continuance of, cause you set forth the long-term vision and just to be able to see things come to fruition that, you know, you left um, on the table for the team that you left behind saying, Hey, you know, do this stuff. It's, it's going to be great. And uh, it's great to see see people do that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. You know, I remember when we were talking earlier, you know, we we're talking about like, you know, back in the day, it was just people posting on the Facebook wall. Like now there are so many channels. Can you talk to me about the growth and and how you manage all these different channels? And I have to imagine too, that geographically, like there are different preferences for different channels that you see. Uh, to manage as well.
0: Sure. Sure. Yeah. Um, so for games, um, a lot of companies prefer email. Um, this was, uh, compared to a lot of other folks in CX in different industries, a, a bit sort of against the grain. A lot of people like to go to voice first, um, as the option. Um, But for video game companies, the primary channel for a lot of folks is email, just because it's asynchronous um, and it's uh, simpler, let's say, to manage. Um, We always try, I, I think we always try to figure out where our players are when we're thinking about what channels to go to beyond email. So if you're a mobile first company or you only build mobile games, a lot of them will opt for some kind of software that has you know, an SDK that allows you to be kind of native in app. Um, there are um, a lot of folks who will understand where their players are from a social media perspective. And we'll try to offer um, additional channels that way Um, because, and because of that demand, you see, you know, through the years, a lot of companies like Facebook, we talked earlier, Facebook Messenger wasn't a thing, but like it became a thing. And not only did it become a thing, it became like a business thing. So it's like, okay, we have to have, you know, certain kinds of tools for businesses to be able to use this as a, you know, customer communication channel. And you see the further development of that with you know, Zuckerberg's most recent announcements on WhatsApp, sort of the cloud API being developed um, as, a, as an additional way for you know, smaller businesses to, to get connected with different channel, low cost, et cetera. So, you know, you have um, a lot of people on these different applications Um, that are popular as well, depending on what kinds of services you wanna offer your players. Um, I used to have um, a weekly engagement with guild leaders for a specific game on the Line app because the majority of them were using Line. The biggest guilds were using Line to communicate with all of their guild members. And so I would come by once a week to all the top guilds and be like, hey, I'm, I'm here for the next hour. You know, you can yell at me all you want about whatever, <laughs> whatever problems it is that you're facing. But more than, more than, more often than not, they were very, uh, they were very measured and mature and kind about it. Um, they had their own guild rules, obviously, to to adhere by. Um, but they were just glad that somebody who could affect change was in the channel with them and spending some time with them, even if it was only, you know once every few weeks or once a month. Um, so really depending on what kinds of engagement you want and what kinds of data you're interested in gathering, um, you, know, you can offer a variety of different sorts of channels. And I would say it's really important not to just offer the same kind of service for every single channel. I think it's really important that um, you play to the strengths of each of the channels that you're going to operate. So, you know, everyone starts with email, figure out where your players are, figure out which ones that they're more likely to want to use, um, test, see if they actually do care about it or not. A lot of people say they care about it, but they don't, they just go back to email. So sometimes you're just spitting up something for no reason, but then, you know, experiment, see what they actually care about, what they actually like, and then focus in on those ones. And then those will, you know, generally be, your channels um, at Epic. We offered not only email but also live chat. Just because we knew that as we, as the the organization matured, and as you know, we started reducing a lot of kind of very simple context through self service. Um, we didn't make it any harder to contact us. You could just literally jump through everything and just go to the ticket submission page if you want. So we didn't put any barriers up in the way, but people were self-selecting and choosing just to get the answer because it was easier. But, um, but we offer live chat as well, because for for some of them, the more complex stuff we were getting through required a lot of email exchanges. So that would artificially kind of bloat the resolution time for them. And we'd rather get players back into the game as soon as possible. And so when we launched live chat, um, finally in uh, 2021, um, you know, we saw 30% plus uh, usage of it during operating hours and much, much better um, player experience um, just practically and then also through the numbers um, for everybody across the board and it was more efficient um, for, for agents as well. So everyone's experience for handling those specific like complex interactions just got better it's like, okay, why not, right? It's like, if you have an account issue, I want to be able to help you like sort it and get back into the game as quickly as possible.
1: It just made sense. Yeah, it's really, I think there's been this trend for a number of years just for for all kinds of companies to increase the number of channels that that they offer, right? Just well we need we need to have email we need to have chat we need to have voice we need to have you know <laughs> social right and it's yeah uh, i think it's really important to recognize like for your business what really are the important channels and let's just focus on doing those really well as opposed to making sure that i've got a million different options and then you find that well we we do quite a few of those options really poorly (laughs) yeah that's that's not a good experience for anyone
0: no it's 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 not and um more often than not it just ends up kind of being a headache right i think it's certainly best to to optimize and um focus on those few places that people actually use like for me it's At the core of a lot of things, I always tell people like utility as a concept is really important to me. So if you're not going to use it, like don't waste time, right? If people aren't going to use it, don't don't waste time on it. And so things that fall out of usage need to go away.
1: (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. So tell me about what you're doing today with player support. Cool, yeah, this was just a
0: a little idea that that came out of um, doing player support for years. Uh, I just really wanted to help people. Um, It spawned out of my personal blog uh, that I've been doing for a while um, just to be uh, much more focused on player support issues um, specifically. Um, And really, the original idea is just to have a resource available for a lot of people, because I find that there, I just found that there weren't many out there in my own journey. And it could be helpful for people so they don't feel like they have to reinvent the wheel all the time, or just to find out more about what the concerns can be at different scales. So it's really meant as a resource to help um, a lot of my colleagues in the industry out who want help. Um, the, uh, addition to that, um, I wanted, and I'm hoping to, to get together the first event, um, live event next year that, um, I'm going to, um, fund myself, but essentially, um, uh, there is no player support slash live ops specific place for a lot of us in the industry together. It's always like, Oh, you know, GDC or something like that but um, specifically on support issues and live operation issues and all of these things having to do with player retention, et cetera, um, and support, excuse me, and support. Um, So the aspiration is to next year start hosting annual events where um, my colleagues and I can get together and do a couple of things. One is work through some really important problems for our industry. Um, So a lot of working sessions. Uh, Two is to share learnings from people who have run very interesting experiments and have robust data. Um, Three is to uh, gather a lot of um, information from player support leaders to better understand kind of across the industry, what it is that we're struggling with and where we need the most help to hopefully inform things like um, you know future software development, tooling, um, processes, policies, et cetera, um, collaborations across teams and to give an opportunity for those who have more resources like larger game studios to be able to um, help um, those who are either just getting started or maybe it's an indie studio or maybe, Hey, yeah, I, I have a relatively small studio. I don't know what to do about this function, right? But I know I'm going to have to pay attention to it someday. I'm, I'm launching my, you know, our studio is launching our first game soon. And I, I should learn something about this, right? Um, uh, so just as a, a general education source, um, I do uh, offer um, consulting via the, the site, or you can just email me or ping me on LinkedIn as well. There's a lot of companies that we outsource to in the industry that um, could use some help in terms of how do how do we answer the question of truly building something specific for gaming, whether that's you know, BPO customer service um, services or whether that's something like strategy teams or whether that's something like um, you know software as a service where you are building this tool and you think uh, a lot of these studios could, could use help with it, right? So kind of across the board, helping those companies understand um, us better as an industry and how they might be able to better cater and develop to um, to the needs if they're interested in serving that. Side. So,
1: Yeah, that's really exciting. You know, it seems like that I think we forget sometimes how young uh, the gaming industry and then the, the player support side of the gaming industry really is like for someone our age, like, you know, we've been playing games since we were kids, but really that was kind of like the, the beginning of this, industry where you have people supporting right I mean Nintendo mm-hmm. had their uh, I don't re- remember what they were called right but the people <laughs> live people you could call to like get you through a particular part in a game if you couldn't you know beat a boss or you couldn't find something yeah and you know that was really groundbreaking at the time and we're not that far removed from that and so I think being able to Kind of bring a lot of that expertise together sounds really exciting particularly for the you know the groups that are still new to it or haven't had to spin up something to support players or haven't had to deal with scale and uh, certainly uh, maybe make some of the lessons that that you and your peers have learned over the years <laughs> make those easier for them to to manage through
0: that's the, that's the hope. Learn from our mistakes. Don't repeat yeah. them and go build something more awesome.
1: <laughs> that is awesome. Well, Tony, man, it's been so great talking to you. Uh, we've we've uh, probably spent more time than I said that we would spend. This has been a, a really exciting episode. I really appreciate you being so generous with your time to talk with me. I've learned an awful lot and I know that my audience is really going to enjoy this episode so so thank you very much
0: thank you for your time rob and and thank you for the conversation i had a good time and yeah hope to speak to you again